Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear about a young woman's journey to find her birth parents and the complications that result from that discovery. You'll take a drunken ride in a car on homecoming night on a fateful drive near Browning, Montana. You'll buy a car in the heat of a Tennessee summer. And finally, you will learn how to cook a signature dish of a beloved chef, Bill Scalapini. The next live Tell Us Something event is November 8th in Butte, Montana. The theme is work. Tickets are on sale now at tellussomething.org slash events. We are taking story pitches for the December 11th Tell Us Something live event. The theme is, did that really happen? If you'd like to pitch your story, please call 406-203-4683. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on October 2nd, 2018 to a sold out crowd at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, It's Complicated. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Liz Beheim, who finds her birth parents and learns that expectations don't always meet reality as she begins building a relationship with her newfound family. Liz calls her story, Family Doesn't Always Come Easy. The first time I said out loud that I wanted to find my birth parents. I was 11 years old in a therapist's office. My parents were getting a divorce and they wanted to make sure that I was okay. So they sent me to see a psychologist who had an office in an old Victorian mansion in upstate New York, downtown Syracuse. And where we met was in the front room. It must have been an old library because it had beautiful woodwork and bookshelves that went up to the ceiling. I sat on a giant leather couch across from a man with a mustache who asked me questions about my feelings. And that was totally new for me. My parents weren't feelings people, um, so I was completely uncomfortable and really didn't have much to say. I wasn't angry and I wasn't sad and it had been hammered into me that it wasn't my fault. So we talked instead about my birth parents and up until that point, I'd always known that I was adopted, but it took the form of daydreaming or stick figure drawings, wondering if they had brown hair like me, if they lived nearby, whether they were looking for me. And my parents would soon remarry and start new families. I was an only child, so I leaned really hard into the idea of finding my birth parents because I wanted to belong to somebody. I had never been related to anyone or had that feeling of looking like another person, and I craved more than anything that click of recognition that families have, where you hear somebody say, I have my dad's eyes, or I get my chin from this person, or the way I push my hair behind my ear is the same as my sister. So that's what I really wanted. The therapist told me that there wasn't anything I could do at this point, but that when I turned 18, I would have access to public records that would help me to find my birth parents. So that became a beacon, a goal that I worked towards. And I started writing letters about my accomplishments, reasons that someone should be proud of me or want to love me. And then when I turned 18, I called the lawyer who facilitated my adoption, and he told me that I had been misinformed. (laughs) That not only was my adoption closed, but it was also private, so there were no records. If they existed for other people, they didn't exist for me. Um, I I was heartbroken, but I was also really pissed. 
<laughs> Nobody thought to mention this in the seven years that I had been planning and talking about it. Uh, and also, he knew, this lawyer, he knew where to find them. And of course, he was legally bound not to tell me, but I knew he knew. <laughs> and around the same time, my mom did tell me, though, that she had years past been at a party and somebody had pointed out to her my birth father. And that's a whole other story, how they happened to be at the same place. But she did learn, she didn't meet him, but she learned his first name was Henry and that he had been a law student at the university in my hometown when I was born. I didn't get all of the information that I wanted or needed, but I got some of it, and that felt like a little bit, it's off in the blow. But I didn't have anything that I could do with the information. This was pre-Facebook, and I was still asking Jeeves for things online. <laughs> so it was a lot harder to find, find people. Uh, and anyway, I was going to college, and it just didn't seem to take priority anymore. It was put on the back burner while I, you know, study for finals and things like that. And it wasn't until after I graduated, um, I had already moved to Montana and I was doing seasonal work, and I was back home between ranch season and ski season and had some downtime. And I realized uh, I know how to use an academic library. You could Google somebody. And it was before Facebook put in those privacy settings, so you could still find your, you know, your preschool sweetheart. And so I took myself on a field trip to the law school library, and they have a book there that has every graduate's name, their law office address and phone number. So I found all of the Henrys who had graduated within a five-year period of when I was born. Two of them had law offices in New York City. One of them had a law office in the small-ass town of Governor in northern New York, which happens to be about an hour from the small-ass city of Watertown, New York, where I was born. So I felt pretty good that this is my guy. And the law school also had these helpful visual aids. Along the corridor, there were these big composite posters that had headshots of all of the graduates per year. So I found all of the Henrys and used my flip phone to take low-res pictures of all of them for comparison. <laughs> I really liked the one I thought belonged to me. He seemed really friendly. Um, <laughs> I had, at this point, I had a first name and a last name. I had an address and I had a phone number. But all of a sudden, the reality of actually getting in touch kind of hit me. It had never occurred to me before then that they might not want to be found, that it might not be a good contact, um, it might not be good news to hear from me. So I realized that if the answer was no, or if the answer was no answer, I, I wasn't ready for it, I couldn't handle that rejection. So I took the contact information, I put it in a drawer, and I waited for four more years. When I was 25, I opened up the Word document, the letter that I had been revising for almost 15 years, and by this point it had evolved. I had added a lot of accomplishments, but instead of asking to be loved, the tone of the letter more so said, these are the things that I'm proud of, these are the things that I've done, and the person that I've become, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to be this person, to have this life. I didn't need anything from them anymore. I had, they had already given me everything that I needed. And so when I sent the letter, I felt that if I never heard anything back, it would be okay, 
and even if I heard no, I was going to be okay. About two weeks passed, and I got an email from Henry, who said he had been expecting to hear from me for a long time, and he was very happy to hear from me. And he put me in touch with my birth mother, and she was just as happy and excited. And we made an arrangement to meet when I went back home for Christmas in another small-ass city in upstate New York. <laughs> and it was the best possible scenario that you could imagine for a, an adoption reunification. They were super warm. They were super loving. We spent an afternoon together, and they told me the story of their relationship, and um, I told them about myself. But I never got that click. I never had that moment of epiphany and recognition that I had always wanted. And I don't know that if I had gotten it that I would feel differently now. It's hard to say. But I left that meeting really happy that I had gone, feeling like I had accomplished a project that was pretty much my whole life in the making, and that I could close the chapter and move forward. I had spent so much time preparing for the very worst that I never anticipated the best possible outcome, that they would not only want to know me, but want me to be a part of their families. I never planned to go to clam bakes at Grandpa's house. I had never had a grandpa before. And I, as an only child, could never have expected to sit in a pew with six of my siblings at Mass. So I wasn't very good at doing family. I didn't have practice doing it, and I wasn't really sure I wanted to start at the age of 25. I had spent a long time mitigating my expectations and my needs, and I hadn't really planned or prepared for the fact that there were these two people, and they did have brown hair, and they didn't live very far away from me, but that they weren't stick figures. They were full, complex, complicated human beings who had their own expectations and their own needs of me. And I haven't been very good at fulfilling them or meeting them, but they do love me. They keep trying, and so do I. So thank you. Thanks, Liz. Liz Beheim moved to Montana to work on a dude ranch for the summer after college and just kept finding excuses to stay. The 18 flight connections to get to upstate New York provides a nice buffer from her very large and very loving family. She can most often be found walking the sidewalks and trails of Missoula with her four-legged main squeeze, Hugo. Our next story comes to us from Arthur Weatherwax, who, as a 15-year-old, lived a double life as a ceremonial Native American and a hard-partying youth in Browning, Montana. A house party on homecoming began a night of choices that would affect Arthur for the rest of his life. Arthur's story is called Life or Death, We All Have Choices. Oki Nixokwaks, Nistu Nitanaku, Inadoski, Ki AJ Arthur Weatherwax. In my native tongue of Blackfeet, I introduced myself. I said, Hello, my friends. My name is AJ Arthur Weatherwax. I thank you all for coming here to hear our true, true, true stories. Before I tell my story, I would like to give you a little history about myself. Before my accident, I was born a healthy, normal young man. 
I enjoyed skiing. I knew how to ride a horse. I was on the chess team. I played baseball, where I was a heavy hitter. I played basketball, which I was not that good at. <laughs> I also was a powwow dancer. My dance was traditional, and then grass. Sometimes, my uncle would check me out of school for cultural reasons, and would take me hunting or fishing instead. <laughs> it was a great life. This all came to an end. It was homecoming night in Browning, Montana in the year 2000. I asked my father, Dad, can du my, cousin, my cousin Dustin and I go to the store and get some soda? He said, sure, sure. Just remember to come to a complete stop at all the stoplights and stop signs. So my cousin and I headed out, drove past the store, and headed up to a homecoming party in East Glacier, Montana. While we were at this party, I should have known that something was going to happen that night because a friend had suggested that I go home. But I didn't listen. I continued to party. As we were leaving the party, my cousin drove us to his house, which was 30 miles south of East Glacier in a sub-community called Old Agency. Before my cousin got out of the car, he begged for me to stay the night at his house. But knowing that we were all drunk and in my father's car, I did not trust the vehicle in the hands of my friends who had hopped in with us at the homecoming party. So, I drove approximately a quarter of a mile down a dirt road. I began passing out at the wheel. They would have, my friends would have to constantly be shaking me to wake me up. Finally, I got to the T intersection of Highway 2 and Old Agency Road, and I pulled over and I asked, who was sober enough to drive? One of my friends replied, I'll drive. So I got in the back seat where force of habit made me put on my seatbelt. He began to drive the rest of the way to town. While we were in town, he took a curve too fast, sliding on some gravel, which hit the car hit a curb, which rolled numerous times and hit a house. The driver of the car was ejected out of the driver's side window, landing on top of the roof of the house, suffering only a few scrapes and bruises. The passenger of the car was with me when the car was rolling into the house, and he suffered a severe spinal injury, which left him paralyzed from the waist down. I was sitting in the back seat. The seatbelt that I had on wrapped around my neck and left me hanging possibly 10 to 30 minutes. They don't know how long. When emergency crews responded to my accident, they were having problems starting the jaws of life, and thanks to an EMT, who happened to be one of my relatives, he was able to start the device which ultimately freed my friend and myself. Meanwhile, my dad decided to go look for us. He took the first left turn from his residence. He saw flashing red and blue lights. As he drove close to the accident, he recognized the hubcaps that were on his car, and he knew that I was in an accident. He pulled over to see what was going on. He seen my cousin evaluating me. They took me. They took me up to the hospital in Browning, where my family quickly gathered to send support, love and support, and they see what my prognosis was was. They were told by the ER doctor in Browning that I had died, but that I had been brought back to life 
63% chance to live. Life flight was called the fly means to the hospital in uh, Great Falls. While I was in medical flight, flying down in Great Falls, I died again in the helicopter. When I got to the hospital in Great Falls, I was upgraded to a 4% chance to live. When, when I got to the hospital in Browning, they did a MRI on me. They noticed that I dislocated three vertebrae in my neck. I busted two ribs. One of the ribs scratched and punctured my right lung and uh, had severe cerebral pressure on my brain. So when I got down to Great Falls, they redid the MRI again. They noticed that the three vertebrae in my neck had shifted back into place. They rushed me into emergency surgery where they cut my scalp open, they raised the flap of my scalp, they drilled two boreholes in my skull in an attempt to relieve the pressure. I was in a coma for three months. The whole time I was in this coma, my family and my friends were all with me, right by my bedside, saying prayers, sacrificing, making vows for, on my behalf to live. When I woke up from this coma, I had to learn how to walk, talk, eat, sleep, drink, everything that everybody has to do. It was like being a newborn baby, but this time I was 18 years old. When I recovered enough to function in everyday life, I, I, in order to keep my morale up, I, had to, I decided to go back to school because my parents were both educators, I decided to go to school and get my high school diploma instead of a GED. I went to high school. I graduated from high school in 2002 after five years of schooling. Schooling was very difficult with the, with the brain injury. When I graduated in 2002, I wanted to get a Bachelor of Arts degree, but first I needed to obtain an Associate of Arts degree, which I did. In. I got an Associate of Arts degree in Chemical Dependency Prevention Practices in 2008. In 2015, while, whilst, while at the Mountain Campus of the University of Montana, I studied abroad in Lismore, Australia at Southern Cross University for six months. It's amazing how, how similar the cultures, the culture is that the Aboriginal people is, have to the Native Americans here in America. I, when I returned from Australia, I, got a, I finished high school. I graduated with my BA degree in Native American Studies in 2017. Three months later, I got a job working at Opportunity Resources, which I've previously been a client for. Now, I assist clients the same way that they assisted me, and at the same time, I get to support myself feels great to be given back. I started, <laughs> thank you. I started running mar uh, in marathons. I run the 5K in marathons. I ran, <laughs> I don't know if that's a marathon, but. <laughs> I ran in the Missoula Marathon. I ran in the Bozeman Marathon. I ran in the Two Fish Marathon up uh, two bear marathon up in Whitefish. I run for all those that can't. I am grateful for my family and my friends. 
I hope that I hope that my story tonight will warn of the dangers of drinking and driving and the importance of never giving up in the face of adversity. I hope that my telling my story tonight will save at least one life, just one life. Seeing, walking, talking, breathing are things that I'm ever grateful for. Every morning that I wake up, I'm thankful to be alive. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Arthur Weatherwax is an enrolled tribal member of the Blackfeet Band of the Blackfoot Nation. Arthur is known by his family and friends, as well as hospital staff from Great Falls Benefits East and West, as a walking, talking miracle. Arthur wakes up every morning remembering the challenges that he has overcome and acknowledges that not everybody works as hard as he did. Arthur also realizes the importance of family and friends who motivated him. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please rate and review us, and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you so much. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community, montanabookstore.com. Cabinetparts.com. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to cabinetparts.com. Cabinetparts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store, supporting Western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years. The Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at GoodFoodStore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Our next story comes to us from Marsha Williams. Marsha Williams and her husband go car shopping together and walk off the lot, knowing that they will be searching for a used car for a while. Spoiler alert, they settle on something reasonable. Marsha calls her story, The Car. Long ago and far away, in a land called Tennessee, in 1997, my then husband and I decided that we needed another car. We had two, but it was a car-centric area, and our daughter was a teenager. She was driving. Our life was going to be a lot easier if we had a one-to-one -one correspondence between our cars and our drivers. <laughs> Morgan, our daughter, unlike every other 16-year-old in the world, did not want a new car. She didn't even want a newer car. 
I had just started a business. I was meeting with clients and attorneys and accountants. We thought, well, we'll get a newer car for Marcia. We were driving 10- and 11-year-old cars, and Morgan didn't have my old car. Seemed like a good plan. We'd been married long enough. We had purchased four cars together. We'd been married long enough to have a teenage daughter. We went to the dealer where we had bought the last two cars. It was July 4th. Those of you who have not been in Middle Tennessee on July 4th, it is not like July 4th in Montana. It is not the first day of the year that you do not have to turn on the heat. <laughs> it's hot. It's humid. It's disgusting. If you go out and you take a deep breath, you go, <gasps> and you can't get enough oxygen because there's so much moisture in the air. David and I went to a car dealer. We spent, count them, four hours there. And if you're looking at used cars, you are outside. At the end of the four hours, we had not closed in on a car. And I said, you know, David, the 11-year-old car, it's good. I'm fine. He said, well, shoot, if you don't want a new car and Morgan doesn't want a new car, I'll get a newer car. And I'm thinking, if I don't have to go car shopping again, this works for me. This was 1997. There were mobile phones. They were approximately the size of a brick, and only real estate agents had them. <laughs> I was at home one night. The phone rang. A gentleman, we will call him Bob, that was not his name, said, I just got a call from this number, maybe about a car. I said, David, this one's for you. Give him the phone. He talks to Bob. Bob has a three-year-old car he's selling. David decides to meet him in that safe, neutral place, the Denny's parking lot. <laughs> he goes, he meets with Bob, he comes back. I said, so, how'd it go? He said, well, Bob doesn't have any paperwork. He doesn't have a title or a registration. He doesn't have an owner's manual for his car, he said. I think it's a little fishy, so given the dubious provenance of Bob's car and our decision that we didn't need Hot Wheels, the process went on. David had seen an index card at work about someone there who was selling a station wagon. We were a family of three. This station wagon was eight years old, but David thought it was worth checking out. They did not have to go to Denny's since they worked at the same place. That night I asked him, so, how was the station wagon? He said, well, you know, the driver's window wouldn't shut all the way, and when you turned it on, the engine went thump 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 So even David rejected the station wagon. Uh, this was before the internet was really the commercial resource that it is now. So if you were looking for a car, you got wheels and deals. It was a um, newsprint magazine that came out, I think, every couple of weeks. And it had itty-bitty pictures of the vehicles with short, abbreviated descriptions of them. And David became a devoted reader of Wheels and Deals. <laughs> I, he'd be in on the couch watching TV, reading every word of Wheels and Deals, and I'd hear, hey, Marcia, come here. And I'd course, go trotting in. This gives you some insights into the marriage and maybe why it didn't last 30 years. And he'd say, here it is, I've got it. And I'd say, well, tell me. He said, it's only seven years old and it's $15,000. Now, there is a lot of information being left out of that. I said, so, 
Tell me more. What else does it say? He said, well, this is a black Lincoln Continental stretch limousine. <laughs> he said, it has 300,000 miles on it, but, <laughs> but there are only 20,000 on this engine. It gets 14 miles to the gallon, and it has a cooler. And I'm thinking, a cooler. I don't know enough about cars to know if a Lincoln Continental stretch limousine needs an extra cooler for the engine. So I said, a cooler. He said, yeah, for the beer. I said, does it come with a uniform for the driver with the little hat? He said, no. I said, okay, that's not going to work. Time goes on. We'll talk about how much time a little later. He gets another edition of Wheels and Deals. Again, the same thing. Marsha, come here, I've found it. I go trotting in. He said, here it is. It's, it's a Rolls Royce. It's 27 years old. I mean, we're trying to get our average fleet age down from 10 and a half years old. This thing is 27 years old. I said, what else does it say? And I quote here because I would not have phrased it this way. It says, it runs good. I said, I know that car. I pass that car every morning on my commute. It's on Hillsborough Road. There are two signs in the window. One of them says for sale and it has a phone number. The other one is on poster board. It's scrawled in all capitals. It says, do not drive this car. It has no brakes. <laughs> I said, it runs good. It don't stop. At this point, two-thirds of the people I work with have purchased additional vehicles since we started this process. One of them has been getting the updates, and he said, for God's sakes, Marcia, it is not this hard. Will you just tell me what the parameters are, give me a budget, and I'll buy you the damn car? <laughs> Obviously, if we'd done that, I wouldn't be here telling you, because we're getting to the really good part. Okay. Now, I was a math major, so I'm pretty good at recognizing patterns, and I have not picked up any sort of pattern in the vehicles that David is considering. <laughs> so I am surprised. Now, this, this was not from the couch in front of the TV. He actually came into the kitchen, and he said, Marcia, I know the car I want. And it's like, Tell me, he said, there is a new Camry at the dealer here in town, and that's what I want to get. And I said, please, go. He said, would you like to come? Best answer I ever gave. No, thank you, because I had been by the dealer that morning, and they had erected chain-link fence around it. And there were all of these people milling about. And I said, so what's going on? He said, well, it's Oktoberfest. Now, you remember we started this in July. We're four months later, Oktoberfest. And at Oktoberfest, the dealer sells one vehicle for $88, but you have to be there. Now, David goes over, and because it's Oktoberfest, in addition to the chain link fence and the people interested in the $88 vehicle, we will refer to them simply as being interesting. Um, they have extra balloons, they have dancing women, they have a DJ playing rock and roll music. I suspect they have bratwurst in the back. <laughs> David and Morgan go, and you don't just go to the office and find a brown-suited car salesman and say, I'd like to buy a Toyota. You 
go to the car that you're interested in and you sit in it. But of course, there's a lot going on what with the balloons and the music and the people waiting for the $88 car. And you start tooting the horn. So you're in the car, you're tooting the horn, the balloons are blowing in the wind, the ladies are dancing, the music is going, the bratwurst is starting to burn. The, these men are milling about for the $88 car and you're tooting the horn. At this point, you are surrounded. Okay, I mean, it's like it just gets better and better. I said, surrounded by what? He said, you are surrounded by car salesmen. I said, and then what? He said, well, they start chanting. I said, well, what do they start chanting? And they start chanting, slash it, slash it, slash it. I said, slash what? Slash the price. And so then the slasher comes. I said, now, I, I'm not there, so I've got a mental image of the slasher looking like death with the shroud and the sickle to slash the price that's been inflated in order that he can slash it. And so he's, he's slashing the price until he gets it to one that you're willing to accept. And I'm thinking, you know, you're, you're trapped in a car, you're surrounded by car salesmen, there's the music blaring, boom, 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 you've got the balloons, the dancing women, all the men milling about, they've got the fence keeping people out or in, and you know, you're not in a really good negotiating position. <laughs> I also noticed that when David came home, um, that he and Morgan were in one vehicle and it was the same vehicle that they had gone in, and I said, so, what about the car? He said, it had tinted windows. <laughs> Mercifully, a few weeks later, he came home in a gently used Volvo, which became our third car. Thank you. Thanks, Marsha. Marsha Williams blogs at citygirlgoeswest.com. She drives a 2010 Subaru, which she bought new in a single afternoon, years before she visited Montana, or even considered moving from Tennessee to Missoula. In our final story, Ray Richo finds his artistic voice at Ciro and Sal's, where he perfects his signature dish, veal scallopini alla masala. Ray calls his story, Finding My Artistic Signature. So tonight, I'm planning to speak about my artistic signature and how that happened. Of course, I've been, Susie and I have lived here for 50 years. We came here since we were newlyweds in 1968. So to do this, to describe 50 years in 10 minutes, that's complicated. <laughs> so I want to begin with uh, the, the persona that I developed throughout the years in Missoula, and that is, we invite you to turn aside for an evening of old world hospitality and cooking. So I'm gonna have to take you back a couple of thousand years. <laughs> Last year, I took a course at the university from Tom Lee, and it was on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the first lecture, there on the PowerPoint presentation was a picture of the man who bought the scrolls from the shepherds. After the class, I went to Tom and I said, Tom, I said, the picture of the guy that bought the scrolls, I said, I've met him. 
Tom said, what? I said, yeah, he actually, he actually came to my house when I was a preteen. So of course I had to tell him the story, and what, ha what actually happened was that particular man eventually became the Bishop of North America for the Assyrian Orthodox Church. And in those years, there were only be half a dozen in the whole continent. And his base was in uh, Hackensack, New Jersey. He decided to come up to Rhode Island to the, visit the church there. And wouldn't you know it, but the elders of the church brought him to my mom's house. Here was a widow. However, she was the essence of hospitality. And to see all these, this, this venerable man walk in with, with all the elders, and my mom hosted them with, with uh, food and, and beverages and pastries. It was just, it was incredible. But that's how I grew up. I grew up with the, the fullness and the richness of good food and hospitality. And so now, let's go to, the, to a little further beyond after I got out of the army. I didn't, I was working, I, uh, I was going to school in Providence, and then my brother got me a job in Provincetown, Cape Cod, in a restaurant. And I was a janitor there and a busboy. This was an unusual restaurant. This place, with everything in the restaurant was handmade. There were probably more than 26 sauces on the menu. It was, it, and everything, every dish was an individual dish. That's how unique everything was in this place. And eventually, after several years, just by accident, I became the, the sous chef. They just brought me in and I, I just had this innate talent for creativity. Whenever I asked the chef, the head chef, how, how, much, how much food do you, how much of like basil do you put in a particular dish, or how much, how much oregano do you put in this particular dish? And he always gave me two answers, a little bit and a good amount. <laughs> there, were, there were never any recipes in this restaurant, as complicated as all the dishes were. And eventually, Susie and I met, we got married, and the next following year, we, the year we were married, here I was, the, the, the chef left, but I had written everything down in this restaurant. And so no one else could take the job but me because I had all the recipes written down. And I gave this book to my youngest son and protege, Abe. Uh, he's here tonight and I'm, and I'm so delighted that he's here to hear this. So I became the executive chef and it was such a, a, a wonderful experience for me. The most complex, the easiest dish for me became the most complex, and that was called veal scallopini alla masala. And many of you here probably have had that dish. And what I did was I, I, I it was a, just veal and mushrooms. That's all it was. There wasn't much to it. There were only like six ingredients in the dish. But when I made the dish, it was something special. I had to make it with three pans. The first pan had uh, clarified butter in it, and I sauteed my mushrooms very quickly, and I seasoned them with salt, pepper, and, and dried basil, and mushrooms, and marsala wine, and put them in a bowl. Then I put more, more clarified butter in that pan, and I started searing the veal, but only one side, and I turned the heat off. 
Then I had two other pans, and these were iron pans. And what I would do was I'd put the mushrooms back over the veal, and then I would reduce all of that liquid, the liquid from the meat, the mushrooms, the lemon, the wine. I would reduce all of that liquid until it became so viscous. And then at that moment, I would heat the two other two pans so hot that I would transfer, just slide everything out so gracefully, it would just slide into the next hot pan, and then I would take it and slide it into the next hot pan. And if you weren't careful, there was so much wine in the dish that if the wine splashed, the flames hit the wine and it burst into flames. And one night, Susie happened to be watching on the line, and lo and behold, all the tickets on the board burned. <laughs> and she took a photograph of me doing this and Abraham standing behind me looking at this happening. <laughs> it's a beautiful memory. <laughs> so here's the core of what happened. In 1970, we decided not to return back to, to Provincetown to work, but we went for a visit. And I decided while we were there, I would give all the cooks a night off. And that was maybe three, four, five days. Because in the peak of the season, you work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, you never get a day off. So here I am, cooking on the line, and one night, there was a lull after, after a while, it was probably nine o'clock, and I'm standing on the side, and this guy comes in the back room, the kitchen, and he yells my name, Ray Risho. I said, here I am. And he comes up to me and he says, I, I'm so excited, I, I needed to meet you. He says, this is our favorite restaurant. He says, but I have to tell you what happened. My, I'm a lawyer from Scarsdale in New York, and my wife and I have a, a summer residence just south of Provincetown in Truro, and we come up here all the time. He says, last year I was here, I had veal scallopini, and it was probably the most beautiful dish I've ever had in my life. It was so memorable. And this is what I usually tell people when they're going to have a dinner and when they're going to get a dinner, that you're going to have memories that last a lifetime. And that's what he was telling me. This was in 1970. And he said, but this year, we came early in the season, and I ordered, I was so excited, I ordered via scallopini, and I couldn't believe it. He said, it was a disaster. It was so bad, I decided I would never come back to this restaurant again. However, we have some guests visiting us from out of town here in Truro, and we decided to come back to Provincetown for dinner tonight. And we said, well, let's go back to Ciro's for one more time, give it one more shot. So we came into the restaurant tonight. And I said, well, I said, well, I'm here tonight. I may as well order my favorite dish, which was the veal scallopini. And so I did. He says, and I couldn't believe it. It was exactly the way I had it last year. I was, I was incredulous. It was amazing. I had to tell the waiter. And so I told the waiter what happened. And the waiter started smiling. And the waiter knew, he says, well, I happen to know what happened. He says, this guy was the best man at our wedding. <laughs> he said, the guy who prepared your dish tonight is only here for a couple of nights. 
And it's the guy that prepared the same dish for you last year. It's the same guy. And at that moment, he said, I just have to meet this man. And then I realized, not at that very moment, but subsequently, how I could basically put a signature on anything that I did. Anything that I prepared, I could, I could make it my own. And that's what I pass off to people. And I just want to make a night tonight for you to remember. And that is, I'm going to just give you one line from one of my favorite songs. And it's by a guy named Robert Zimmerman, who won the Nobel, <laughs> Nobel in poetry. And that is, someday, everything's going to sound like a rhapsody when I paint my masterpiece. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Ray Risho is a chef, former restaurateur, and an independent scholar teaching and currently working with a team of people to write a book on global cuisine. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org Fact and Fiction where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact, factinfictionbooks.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company. Locally owned and operating four stations, The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and a part of our unique Western Montana community, featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station and ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks, or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at GeckoDesigns.com. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at CashForJunkersMusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Liz Bayheim, Arthur Weatherwax, Marsha Williams, and Ray Risho. The next Tell Us Something event is November 8th at the Covalite in Butte, Montana. The theme is work. We are taking story pitches for the December Tell Us Something live event. The theme is, did that really happen? If you'd like to pitch your story, please call 406-203-4683. You can find Tell Us Something on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, your story matters.